ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Monday the 4th of March. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. In federal politics, while the Labor parties retain the seat of Dunkley in the weekend's by-election for the Melbourne-based seat, both major parties are claiming positives out of the result. The Albanese government says it's an endorsement of its cost of living relief, while the Liberals say the political trajectory is bending its way. But some within the opposition's ranks say the coalition needs to start offering more on the policy front if it wants to win elections. Here's political reporter Tom Lowry. The Liberal Party lost the Dunkley by-election, but on Sunday morning, coalition figures sounded like they couldn't be more pleased. I think the Liberals have their tails up this morning. I think Peter Dutton can take a lot out of this. This is game on. Overall, it was a very, very good outcome for the Liberal Party. Many observers saw this by-election, with the cost of living a pressing concern, a chance for the Liberals to win back the outer Melbourne seat, once safe Liberal territory. Keith Wallahan is the member for Menzies, one of just two Liberal MPs in metropolitan Melbourne. He's upbeat about the result, given the party's recent history in Victoria. When you look at the last by-election we had federally in Victoria, my party suffered a a larger than 6% two-party preferred swing. So to then have 12 months later a swing to us of 3%, I, I think that shows that what Peter Dutton and the team are doing does matter and, and voters are sitting up and listening to what our party has to offer. Dunkley is the sort of seat the party needs to be winning if it's going to have a shot of taking back government at the next election. Keith Wallahan says one lesson to take from the defeat is that it's time for some policy detail. The number one role of an opposition is to hold the government to account and, and Peter and the team have done a fantastic job going forward to the next federal election, uh, the onus then is on us to say also, well, what would a Peter Dutton government look like? And and we will do that work and present those alternatives uh, to the country. Perhaps the, the policy cabinet is not as full as it could be, you know, a little over 12 months out from a federal election? I think that's a fair observation. The result is not without lessons for the Labor Party too. Brendan O'Connor is the Skills and Training Minister and member for the Melbourne seat of Gorton and was a close friend of the former member for Dunkley, the late Peter Murphy. If anything, it confirmed our very strongly held view that we needed to respond and we have been responding to cost of living pressures. People are doing it tough and we've put in a series of measures. We all, There's always more to be done, but I think the voters of Dunkley are... Uh, understood that the Albanese government was on their side. The coalition also ramped up its attacks on the government's proposed vehicle efficiency standards, which the opposition has labelled a ute and family car tax. Brendan O'Connor says he's confident it didn't make an impact. Peter Dutton saw that as a chance to scare people, uh, just like we've seen Liberals in the past talk about $100 roasts and talking about the end of Wyala and talk about the end of the weekend. I mean, they always reach for a scare campaign. I don't think it worked. With this by-election done, attention will turn to the next. The Liberals will today pre-select their candidate for Scott Morrison's ultra-safe former seat of Cook in southern Sydney. Local Mayor Carmelo Pesci and consultant Simon Kennedy are both considered front-runners, but veterans family advocate Gwen is also a contender. Keith Wallahan says Cook is a matter for local pre-selectors, but he points out the Liberals need more female MPs. I'll never comment on an individual pre-selection, but more broadly, I would like to see more women on our side of the chamber. 
Liberal MP Keith Wallahan ending that report from Tom Lowry. And as we heard, there's been a two-party preferred swing to the Liberal Party in the Dunkley by-election. The Coalition believes it has to win out of suburban electorates right across the nation, like Dunkley, if it's to have a serious shot at claiming the next federal election. Our reporter Samantha Donovan asked Dunkley voters in the suburb of Carrum Downs how they felt about the weekend's result and the next general election. At this Caram Downs shopping centre, locals are buying their groceries for the week. This Liberal voter is disappointed the party didn't win the by-election for Dunkley. Oh, I think it could have pushed a lot of the bad things that Labor's been doing, you know, and it's cost of living and all this sort of stuff. Polster Cosimaris describes Caram Downs as the canary in the coal mine for the next federal election. He observes a high number of residents have home loans and the shopping centre car park here shows locals are heavily reliant on driving as there's no train station nearby. Recent results indicate Labor tends to have stronger support in this part of the Dunkley electorate. This voter wasn't sure if the Labor win was a good thing. Because I find the Prime Minister, to me, he has no idea what he's doing. I don't think I'll be voting for him again. What do you think of the opposition leader, Peter Dutton? I'm not really sure about him. Most people we spoke to seemed happy the Labor candidate, Jodie Bellier, has retained the seat of Dunkley for the party. I think it was good. She's from here, she's got family, family driven. Do you think the Liberals have a chance of winning Dunkley at the federal election? You're shaking your head. Why not? I would never vote Liberal. Never. Oh, for Jodie, uh, yeah, Jodie was, uh, yeah, was good that she won. I actually wanted the Independent to win. Yeah. Why were you keen on the Independent? Just for something different. Do you know much about the, the Liberal policies and what they're standing for ahead of the federal election? No. I, I basically don't... Uh, pay much attention to that, no. And what about the Labor government's change of heart on the tax cuts? They decided to make a bigger tax cut for lower and middle income earners. Were people in Dunkley very aware of that change, do you think? Yeah, yeah we were aware of it. I think more of a sweetener to, uh, to try and get the votes. Do you think the Liberal Party's got any chance of winning Dunkley at the federal election in a year or so or less? No, I don't think they'll get a chance, personally. I think they're just too... They, Mostly feel they're superior to a lot of ordinary working class people. I was glad that the um, that the party who had been previously been elected and had a deceased member was re-elected, and I thought that was the fairest outcome for that for that election. What do you think of Peter Dutton? I was pretty disappointed with the the outcome and the sorts of arguments that were were spread around uh, voting for the Voice, and I thought that was a meanness of spirit. From a, from a political leader. What do you think the Liberal Party can do to appeal to Dunkley voters before the next federal election? Well, the Liberal Party traditionally uh, appeals to the hip pocket nerve. So uh, that combined with how well the Labor Party manages the economy will be the sort of thing that will influence voters and, and mainly family people. I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm Labor girl. <laughs> Would the Liberal Party ever appeal to you? Uh, no. No, I don't trust them. <laughs> Caram Downs voters in the Melbourne seat of Dunkley speaking there with Samantha Donovan. Jane Hume is the Federal Opposition's finance spokeswoman and a Liberal Senator for Victoria. Jane Hume, welcome to AM. Great to be with you, Sabra. Peter Dutton had urged a protest vote in Dunkley, focusing on the high cost of living and 13 interest rate hikes in a row. It doesn't seem the electorate is super cranky with Labor. Well, before the weekend, Dunkley was a safe seat, 
But on Saturday, Nathan Conroy and the party turned Dunkley into a marginal seat for Labor, and I'd call that a really good sign for the Liberals in Victoria. In fact, while we haven't finished counting the votes yet, by the time we do, it may in fact be the most marginal seat in the state. And there were some real green shoots, I think, for the Liberal Party there. For the first time in uh, about a decade, the Liberal Party increased its primary vote in Dunkley. And it was about the first time uh, in the same period uh, that we increased our our, our two-party preferred vote too. So it's, it's actually the best two-party preferred vote that we've seen since 2016. And that was the last time we won the seat. So we always knew that it was going to be a tough by-election for the Liberal Party. We've, we haven't held the seat of Dunkley with its current boundaries ever before. Uh, and at the last election, the primary vote went down. So uh, we think that this has actually been a really good sign for us. And we've certainly got our tails up after the weekend. Based on the latest counting, though, on first preferences, there was a swing to the Labor Party too. Well, we know that the Labor Party's primary did go up, but certainly the Liberal Party's primary went up too. We think that's a really good sign, a really good sign and gives us something to work on. We know to- that the messages were beginning to resonate and, uh, and, you know, only, what is it, less than two years into opposition, uh, you know, the numbers are beginning to move. To win government, the Liberal Party needs to win seats in Victoria like Dunkley and reclaim the teal seats, doesn't it? Well, that's exactly right. And this is an indication that it can be done. Seats like Dunkley, seats like Aston, but also seats like Higgins and like Kuyong. All of these seats are marginal and they are in the mix. Like every election, we will target marginal seats and Dunkley is now a marginal seat. Will detailing new policies help? It's being reported that the party will soon unveil a plan for small nuclear modular reactors. Will the party do that and be explicit about the costs and locations? Well, like every election, we will go to the election with a suite of fully costed and fully developed policies that we'll present to the Australian public at the time of the party's choosing, at the time of our choosing, when it suits us, not when it suits the Labor Party. But it's reported today that that is what the coalition will be doing. Can you confirm that? Well, I can confirm that we're at the advanced stages of a cheaper and cleaner energy program. We haven't made any secrets of this. This is something that we've been talking about for a long period of time. We know that the energy policy under Labor has become a train wreck. They promised a $275 cut to their energy bills. It was an entirely hollow promise when it was made. Uh, And yet at the same time, uh, we've seen energy prices go up. The plan for 82% renewables by 2030 is going to require thousands of kilometres of new transmissions lines. It's, It's proving incredibly difficult. On nuclear energy, the Albanese government is leaving us as the only G20 nation to to not have embraced or at least be on a pathway to embracing nuclear technology. 20 countries, countries, and and that includes our closest allies, they all signed a pledge late last year at COP28 in Dubai calling for a triple, a tripling of zero emissions nuclear energy. But Australia was nowhere to be seen on that. Will the coalition be explicit on where they will be located and explicit on the cost? Well, the policy, as I said, is in advanced stages and we will be explicit at that stage. But the most important thing here is that this is a genuine pathway to net zero by 2050, but it will be done so ensuring that we have cheaper energy at the same time. What about more women in your ranks? The pre-selection for the seat of Cook 
Scott Morrison's seat will be finalised tonight. Would a woman in that safe seat send a strong message to the whole country? Well, look, I am a Victorian and I don't like to weigh in on pre-selections in any other state. Uh, that said, I, I did meet uh, one of the candidates there, Gwen Chen. I thought she was a terrific candidate. She's a veteran uh, she's a veteran family advocate commissioner, I think is her title, and uh, she struck me as a, as a highly qualified candidate. But it's the good folk of the good liberals of Cook that will choose their next candidate, and they'll choose somebody that will take them, has the best chance of of leading them to the next election and representing them in parliament. Jane Hume, thanks for talking to AM. Great to be with you, Sabra. And Jane Hume is the federal opposition's finance spokeswoman and a liberal senator for Victoria. Israel has dampened hopes of a ceasefire in Gaza by refusing to send a delegation to Cairo for negotiations. The United States says a ceasefire deal is on the table, but Israel and Hamas are still arguing about the release of hostages and prisoners. It's making hopes to pause the conflict and deliver desperately needed aid within the next week before the Muslim holy month of Ramadan look unlikely. From Jerusalem, Eric Torchik reports. <laughs> Protesters fill Jerusalem's Paris Square, demanding a deal between Israel and Hamas to release the 134 Israelis held in Gaza since the October the 7th attacks. They should have done everything they could before, but, you know, the sooner the better. Michal Balberg is one of many Israelis who want the government to do more to get the hostages out. At least 31 of those held in Gaza are thought now to be dead. To tell everyone that the hostages have to be home now. It's very simple. Other protesters feel the same. What do you think about the way the government has been handling the hostage negotiations? It's awful. I'm sure that many of them are dead now and will die uh, uh, when, the, when the Israeli forces will go in. Not everyone at the rally wants a deal. Police remove this man, who was chanting, don't release the terrorists, for his own protection. His view is shared by some in the government. Former hostage negotiator Gershon Baskin says key Israeli officials want to continue the campaign against Hamas in Gaza. Netanyahu and his government are not that keen on getting a deal, which would include a ceasefire for 45 days throughout Ramadan, that they believe that they are close to finding the leadership of Hamas underground and they are close to killing them. And the Israeli theory is that once they kill the leadership, the chain of command will break down and the hostages will be freed. And in my mind, that is an enormous gamble. United States officials, in a background briefing, told reporters Israel had basically accepted a deal for a six-week ceasefire in exchange for the release of vulnerable hostages. But then Israel announced it would not negotiate further until Hamas provides an updated list of hostages who are still alive. In the 17 years that I've negotiated with Hamas, it is almost impossible to get anything from them of that type. And if you're going to determine whether or not there's a deal on Hamas being cooperative with information, well, it's simply saying there's not going to be a deal. Hamas has told Arab news outlets it won't be releasing the hostage information until a ceasefire is enacted, leaving the negotiations deadlocked. And as the conflict drags on, the conditions inside Gaza get worse. This is Eric Torchek in Jerusalem, reporting for AM.
As the war continues, the United States president is desperate to secure a ceasefire not only for peace but his own political fortunes. Joe Biden's approach to the war has isolated many Democrat voters and triggered a campaign of protest against him. In Michigan, a swing state that often shifts support from Democrats to Republicans, 100,000 anti-Biden ballots were lodged in the primary vote last week. The state has the largest Arab-American population in the country, and if that result's repeated in November, it could cost the president the White House. Here's North America correspondent Carrington Clark. It's a long way from Mohammed Kazas's ancestral home in Jerusalem to his coffee business in Dearborn, Michigan. But the war in Gaza is inescapable for Arab Americans like him. It's um, very sad, um, depressing. Um, I'm very angry about what's happening. Um, you know, what should ha- none of this should have happened. Mohammed voted for Joe Biden in 2020, but, like many, has turned on the president for his strong support for Israel as it continues its bombardment of Gaza. We saved America from Trump. Now we need to save Palestine from Joe Biden. He was one of more than 100,000 people in Michigan who rejected Biden at last week's primary contest. Teenagers and first-time voters Doa and Haroon had similar messages for the president. This is my first time voting and I am voting because Joe Biden refuses to call for a ceasefire and there is, despite the fact that there is a genocide going on. We want everyone to understand that this is not a conflict or a war, this is a genocide. Israel vehemently denies that it is carrying out genocide against the Palestinians, but the deaths of more than 30,000 people in the besieged coastal enclave is emotionally felt by the community of Dearborn. Dearborn is the only majority Arab-American city in the United States, and many of its residents have lost relatives or friends in Gaza. Joe Biden still won the Michigan primary election, but the strength of the vote against him would be worrying his campaign. Palestinian-American activist Alexei Zaydan was one of those encouraging voters to tick uncommitted on their ballots to send a message. She's confident the momentum will continue. You're witnessing a revolution in our, in, in our electoral system. Do I know what that's going to evolve into? I don't. But I know that what I'm experiencing as a Palestinian is I'm experiencing momentum and, and empathy and sympathy like I've never experienced before and, and for as long as I've been alive. Michigan is a crucial swing state, one of just a handful expected to determine who will be the next president. Donald Trump unexpectedly won here in 2016, beating Hillary Clinton by just over 10,000 votes. Joe Biden won in 2020 by about 150,000 votes with the strong support of the Arab-American community. University of Michigan professor Julio Borges says that support has plummeted since October the 7th. Coming off as, as, as an unquestioned supporter of Israel is not helpful politically. But, uh, yeah, I, I do think he feels hemmed in. And part of the reason that he, the, the White House seems to be stumbling here is <clears throat> because they don't know what to do. Joe Biden desperately wants those who voted against him in the primary to support him in what is looking almost certain to be a matchup against Donald Trump in November. Sentiment in Dearborn will probably depend on the situation in Gaza. This is Carrington Clark in Dearborn, Michigan, reporting for AM. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Every so often a product comes along that takes us by storm and in the process shifts spending and changes economies. 
the iPhone, Netflix and ChatGPT spring to mind. But less obvious is something like Ozempic. Today, the ABC's business editor, Ian Verinder, on how the drug being used for weight loss is breaking down business models. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.